Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Year of Polygamy podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay. And if you have been trying to listen to this podcast on the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast feed, it isn't working, as you've noticed. It's been an issue that we're trying to work out. I'm relying on volunteers to help me. I'm trying to transfer the URL. And a lot of the content from the site crashed, and it's really above my experience with web design. So I have volunteers who are helping, but I really have to rely on their timeline. So we're working on getting that restored. But if you're listening, all of the contents can still be found and will always be found on yearpolygamy.com. A lot of your donations, those who are donating, goes to keeping that site up and running. And so yearofpolygamy.com is where you're going to find all of the podcast feed. Uh, It's also on iTunes under Year of Polygamy. And speaking of which, I am going to be playing part of an old uh, Mormon expression podcast about Mountain Meadows Massacre today. Mormon Expression is owned by the Whitefields Education Foundation and John Larson, and I helped organize a panel, and we're going to cross-post the podcast. We've we've had it cross-posted on the FMH site forever, so I'm just going to rebroadcast it, but it will show up in this feed so you can hear about it. What I'm going to do today is start talking about several massacres. I've been doing a lot of research lately on crowd psychology, mob psychology, mimetic violence, and group violence and group thinking. And because Mormonism is so tribal in so many ways, I think that it's an appropriate thing to understand the context of Mormonism, to understand the idea of how plural families shape group dynamics and how it translates to oppressed groups. So we're going to be doing a series of probably three episodes of the massacres that have occurred in Mormonism's name. So it's going to be unpleasant. It's going to be a little, a lot violent and might be hard to listen to. So if you can't stomach violence and gore and those kind of things, I wouldn't listen to the next three ones. Uh, Again, for me, this has value because it's interesting to see how these theories, these theories of crowd psychology and group psychology play into one another. Now, there are a lot of philosophies based on this, and a lot of it comes from France. There were several French theorists, and I I don't speak French, so I'm sure my accent, my Utah accent is going to completely butcher this, if you'll forgive the terrible pun. Uh, Gustave Le, Le Bon was a French theorist, and he had, he was the one that came up, he studied a lot of mob psychology, and he, he held that when a group was together, organizing together for whatever purpose, that they would lose their own sense of individual self and personal responsibility. So when you're with a group collectively, whether it's sitting at church in Sunday school or whether it's at a protest or a rally, you start to forget about your own personal self and you start to get a collective identity. Now, in Mormonism, this makes a lot of sense, right? So let me just be clear. Mob psychology has a pejorative attached to it because the word mob is is traditionally used as a a negative thing. But really what this, this doesn't have to be a negative thing. So like I said, it can apply to your church congregations when you're sitting there in sacrament meeting or at Sunday school or at church or wherever you might gather for, you know, good intent. You sort of lose your own personal feelings and identity and adopt the collective mentality. This is what Libon theorized. And it's quite heavily influenced by the anonymity of the crowd. So it's even probably stronger the larger the group is and perhaps the less you know about individuals in the group. So that can influence the way that um, you see things. If you're strangers in the crowd, you might develop and even more loss of sense of self because it's easy to place yourself as an anonymous person like the one sitting next to you. Now, there are other theories too. One of them is convergence theory. And it's the idea that instead of people coming together and losing their individual identity, that perhaps maybe the reason why people gather is because they are like-minded and just happen to be together at the same place at the same time. And um, of course, this would also apply to Mormonism Let's go with the Sunday school metaphor. People come to church, and if they're losing their identity for shared values, it might be because those shared values are shared values. They're values that are inherently part of the individuals that they bring together. And so you develop this culture around that. And this is also part of group 
psychology, this idea that there are group norms that develop out of these different sorts of meetings. So you could be with a group and perhaps some cultural things that wouldn't exist elsewhere would exist in the group. So I'll just give you an example. I've never been to Burning Man, but I have a friend that has. And he was telling me that after a few days of being at Burning Man, you just really get used to seeing so many people naked and nude. It's not even an issue. And, you know, you could walk by one of your friends who you've worked with and see them taking a shower naked and not take a second look. But in any other context that would, you know, make you severely uncomfortable or you'd be embarrassed or it would be awkward. But in this context, because you've adopted these group norms and this group culture inherent in the group, it's not so strange. So there's one other theory I want to bring up. And again, I these, these are complex theories and I'm really being reductive. But there's this idea of Gerard, uh, Rene Gerard, who was another French theorist. And I think he, he initially was a professor of literature, but he developed the idea of mimetic theory. And this to me is the most interesting. And of course, it has its critiques. But mimetic theory was developed out of Girard's uh, sort of research looking at French literature. And what he realized was that the, what he theorized is that the best authors, the best writers, the, the, the society deemed the most talented would stick to the same narrative script every time. Sort of Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey that shows up in all the best literature repeatedly. And Girard actually said the... <laughs> paradox was the better the writer was, the more talented they were, the less individuality that they expressed in their writing. It actually became more of the script that they stuck to. And this sort of led him to develop mimetic theory, which is this idea that in groups, there is this sort of unconscious energy that happens. And again, I'm being super reductive, but if you look at ancient tribes like the Vedas, they come up with all of these myths. And the myths would really resemble those in Christianity. So in mimetic theory, the idea is that people are violent inherently. We are animals inherently. And what it is, is as animals, we have desires. It might be desires for a mate. It might be desires for food. Uh, for survival. And what we do is because many of us want a resource and resources are scarce, we kill each other or we wound each other or we harm each other for those resources. But after a while, people started living together and realized that they needed each other for survival. But they had these desires and sometimes the desires were competing desires. And so it wasn't really economical. It wasn't really efficient to kill off anyone in your tribe. Although certainly the history of evolution shows that some primate species, some groups of early humans were incredibly violent within their own tribe. But somewhere along the line, according to Gerard, people realized that this wasn't a sustainable method. Whether they evolved to a higher consciousness or their myths evolved or they wanted to become more civilized, what they decided was there is this energy that happens because we have this shared desire, these competing desires. And if we don't address them, then something's going to happen. And even more complicated, Gerard theorizes that, especially in oppressed groups, in groups that are oppressed or persecuted or have outside forces that can harm them. And so this would apply to Mormons who are being persecuted by the federal government and outsiders and misunderstood by society. And it could apply to early tribal societies where you are really fighting the elements. Your tribe has to stick together or a lion could come in and take your ch child at any time. A fire, lightning could strike and burn all your resources, all your plants, and you would die. Either of those things are threatening your environment. And so what happens is these groups start to develop myths that perpetuate the violence within themselves that they are afraid of from the outside world. I know that sounds a little hippy-dippy, but bear with me. So in mimetic theory, groups simultaneously realize it's not sustainable to kill everybody in your group over competing desires, and that they're afraid of these outside sources, and that fear translates into aggression that has to be accounted for. And again, I could be completely butchering Gerard's mimetic theory 
He's written many books, and you should uh, go check those out on Audible. They're a little dry in the reading, but they're fantastic to understand this. But this is why common myths across the board develop the same characteristics, just like they did it in French literature. And, and it's basically this. There are two competing interests, two competing desires, and this is critical. This has to exist. So whether it's in politics and we have right wing and left wing, or it's uh, in religion where there's the forces of good and evil, there has to be competing interests in this myth. So there's competing interest and there are penalties attached and there are consequences. Now for early tribes, it would have meant the consequences were pretty grave. It would have been an earthquake or a volcano or a fire or something, some cosmic energy outside of your control that you now ascribe to a god. It's not just nature. It's the gods punishing you because in your myth, it's the struggle between right and wrong. And if we ascribe these these forces outside of our control into this myth, it starts to make sense and we're able to control it in a way. So whatever competing desires you have amongst you can now be channeled towards the greater good for your village or your tribe or your group or your family or your religion. So you develop this myth where good and evil are having this war and bad things are happening and good things are happening. So when the rains come and they water your crops, you rejoice. When the floods come and destroy your crops, somebody has done something and now a price needs to be paid. And Gerard talks about this idea of sacrifice. Sacrifice is essential to the story of mimetic theory. What sacrifice does is it gives a group a way to sort of let out all this pent-up frustration and this fear. So every tradition, even old cultures that never had any interaction with one another, have these same myths some sort of struggle of competing desire, and a sacrifice must be made. Somebody has to pay. What this means is you don't have to kill your neighbor for taking the resources from your mouth. If there's not enough food to go around, you don't kill your neighbor for it. Instead, you come up with a ritual sacrifice. Now, in ancient times, this would have looked like an actual sacrifice, a virgin sacrifice, finding someone that needed to be killed, a child, perhaps someone innocent, or sometimes someone not so innocent. It just depends on what is ascribed to them. And in these ancient texts, Gerard talks about all the different ways that uh, these myths will sort of incriminate the sacrificial victim. So you sacrifice for the God's sake. All of this energy is pent up. The sacrifice happens in usually probably a violent way. And then that energy is released, at least temporarily. And then they go about in building up this energy over and over and over again, like a cycle. And as time has gone by, people tried to do different things. Um, There came a time when virgin sacrifice in some cultures seemed barbaric. And so they tried to do it with animals. Christian theology is really radical in this sense, because what it did is it offered the idea of a sacrificial lamb. But the lamb was actually a person, but even more complicated, the lamb is the God. So now the God is a sacrifice God himself. This shows up in ancient texts too, where sometimes the sacrifice is actually the God of sacrifice, sometimes demanding sacrifice and sometimes requiring sacrifice of themselves. It's really complicated, but if you look at Christian theology, it's, the, it's this idea of No more sacrifice in your community. It doesn't have to happen because Jesus Christ is that sacrifice. You can put all of your sins onto him. He is going to pay the price every time. So we don't need to keep doing ritual sacrifice. We don't need to sacrifice animals. We don't need it anymore because Jesus Christ is taking care of it for everyone permanently forever. That is why it was radical theology at the time. Now, when that applies to Mormonism... If you look at the frontier doctrine of blood atonement, this is why I am going to theorize right now that Mormonism was more violent during the frontier period than at any other time. Now, it would be easy to say that it was economical. It was just, you know, how the West was won. It was what people did back then. But that's not necessarily true. Look at Joseph Smith in New England in the 1830s. If massacres would have happened on the scale that they happened in Utah, it would have been chaos. 
Of course, the human story is violent and the American story is equally violent, especially in regards to the indigenous tribes. That was a way that we could sort of look away for the greater good. But something really happens, especially in the 1850s and 1860s. And I'm going to argue that the emergence of blood atonement is no accident. Because in the theory of blood atonement, what it basically means is that there are some things that Christ can't even pay for. And so if we're going to apply that to mimetic theory, what this means is, according to what I would interpret Gerard saying, we're taking away the sacrifice. We're saying there are some sins that even Christ can't account for. And when you do that, if, this, if it is true that there is this group energy that has to be accounted for, this justice, this atonement, this price that must be paid, where do you go if you take Christ out of your theology? if you take out your sacrifice. Now, of course, this deserves cross-cultural analysis, but I'm just going to theorize, speculate for this podcast. Perhaps in doing so, in changing that thinking where Christ does not become the sacrificial lamb, but there has to be accountability, that perhaps this is why we see such violence enacted out in all of these massacres. So that's where I'm going to start. It's kind of, it's kind of theoretical and it's possibly misguided, but it's an interesting thing to think about. So look up Gerard's mimetic violence, Gustave Le Bon on mob psychology and convergence theory. Those are all some interesting things to look into. So I'm going to talk briefly about Mountain Meadows Massacre, and then I'm going to play the Mormon Expression podcast, which is no longer around. I think you can pay for the episodes at mormonexpression.com, and it would be worth it if you can handle sort of snarky uh, more sarcastic, sometimes more aggressive views of Mormonism. But it certainly is It's a fun way to um, engage these topics if you can handle a little rowdiness. I, I want to um, talk about Mountain Meadows Massacre for just a minute. So I don't know what it is about the, you know, the letter M, but September 11th, the date that the you know, Mountain Meadows Massacre happened is so tied to so many letter M words. And I'm a sucker for alliteration, but we've got Mountain Meadows Massacre, three M's right there, or the, or the Mormon Meadows Massacre, depending how you say it. There's murder and Mormonism and memorial and monument and militia and Milgram experiment and September 11th with Muslim and Manhattan and all of these M words. But the M word that I want to focus on is misunderstanding. And I think that that's going to be the focus because the takeaway from September 11th, 1857 and September 11, 2001, reveals a lot about this world. And to me, it's how humans misunderstand one another and what collective thinking can do and what identity does and how it shapes how we understand how we act upon others and how they act upon us and how we see all of this. How our struggle for human survival, sometimes if the struggle is so inherent and you don't have an outlet for your energy. You know, you don't have justice. You don't have a way for someone to atone for the little struggles of your desires. Too often the result can be massacre. And I just want to say this because I feel like I need to say it over and over and over. I, every September 11th, I see this meme going around on Facebook uh, with Mountain Meadows Massacre, and it says something like, it's the worst massacre on American soil in history. And they're trying to say, like, it's not September 11th with the Twin Towers, but it's Mountain Mas Meadows Massacre. And I feel like this is a misunderstanding of history. It's such a myopic view of history. And so just really quick, just let me get this pet peeve out. It's such an ethnocentric view of, of Mormonism. Mountain Meadows Massacre occurred September 1857, six years after an even bigger massacre in the Utah Territory, where over 300 people were slaughtered. And that was the Bear River Massacre, which we're going to cover. Um, 300 people died in the Bear River Massacre. We never talk about that because a lot of the people that died were Native Americans. You have the Colfax Massacre in 1873 in Louisiana, where 180 black freed men were slaughtered by angry white people. You have the 1864 Fort Pillow Massacre, where 300 people were killed, most of them African-American soldiers. 
You don't talk about that. Of course, the Battle of Wounded Knee, where women and children were slaughtered brutally, along with, you know, male Lakota men, somewhere between 150 to 300 people, all put in a frozen mass grave. We don't talk about that. Mountain Meadows is bad. There's there's no question that it's bad. There's no diminishing it. It's bad and gruesome and ugly, and it impacts the West, especially Utah, and it really says a lot. It's a commentary of Mormonism of that time. But my plea is for all of us to resist the urge to point the finger at these stories and make it so simple. And to say, you know, and especially to use these massacres as a way to like beat beat the church up. Like the church does fine on its own, you know, showing its flaws. You don't need to say that it's the worst massacre in uh, human history. First of all, it's not factually accurate. And that's not a distinction anybody should be racing towards. And if we're going to be self-reflective in this idea of misunderstanding and this mimetic violence and mimetic energy, I really don't think it's wise that we tell ourselves stories that back up narratives that we need to cling to. And that's my challenge for you today, as hard as it is, to use these stories as puzzle, to not use these stories as puzzle pieces to fit into an agenda. Because you don't even need to. The story on its own has enough implications. But we do that, right? We have this worldview and this narrative. And depending on our views of Mormonism, we use this, these, these tragic events and put them in place to attach it to a narrative that we need because of our own personal situation. I come from the LDS tradition, as you know. I deal with thousands of people, truly thousands of people, wounded by Mormonism. And sometimes we need these stories to weaponize and weaponize them to distract us from those wounds, from our own wounds. I get that. I've done it myself. I'll probably continue to do it myself because it's human nature. And sometimes it can be comforting and validating to realize that something that hurt you is so wicked that it could be capable of this. But I really do believe that that simple urge to use stories to fit our narrative can really lead to misunderstandings. And sometimes those misunderstandings don't do the world any justice. In fact, they can do the opposite. They lead to injustice. And, you know, some people would hear me saying, so you're trying to excuse the Mountain Meadows Massacre or give them a pass or something like that. Absolutely not. Again, I feel like my record is very clear on that. But when I'm asking for nuance and I'm asking for um, understanding, what I'm doing is not asking for the church to get a pass, Mormonism to get a pass, that these, these villains in history to get a pass. What I'm doing is I'm asking my listeners to be better than that, to be rigorous, to exercise that muscle of trying to disrupt the single story narrative. Because in my experience, it's when we attach ourselves to black and white thinking, to single story narrative, to group think, that the danger occurs. So in the spirit of not recreating what we become, and again, I say this is a complete hypocrite. I have to stop myself from the urge all the time, and I don't always do that especially when it comes to politics. Let's just use this as an exercise to do so. Okay, enough preaching, at least for now. Um, just on a lighter note, I originally gave this presentation on September 11th, and I think it's applicable for that day. And I had my friend Claire Barris, who's been on here. Um, he runs uh, the blog called This Day in Mormon History. Uh, you can check it out at todayinmormonhistory.com. And he gave me this really great list of fun facts of things that had happened on September 11th as well in Mormonism. And I thought because this is such a heavy topic, I would throw it out for levity first. So you can also realize that to disrupt the narrative that September 11th is a terrible day because terrible things would happen on that day, that also many people have that as a birthday and there are other things that happened in Mormon history. So I'm going to tell you some of these. Um, September 11th, 1853, Brigham Young announces that there will be a temple in Scotland. Joseph Smith once made a similar revelation or promise to Apostle Parley P. Pratt. After Mountain Meadows, on September 11th, 1859, Wilford Woodruff uh, wrote, quote, I met with my quorum. President Young said, 
that the seer stone which Joseph Smith first obtained he got in an iron kettle 15 feet underground. He saw it while looking in another seer stone which a person had. He went right to the spot and dug and found it, end quote. So Wilford Woodruff records that in his journal on September 11th, that Joseph Smith found the seer stone and it was in an iron kettle. On September 11, 1871, counselor Daniel H. Wells tells the Grantsville School of the prophets that they were holding that, quote, a great many of our young men are abusing themselves by that habit of self-pollution or self-abuse, or as the Bible terms it, onanism, which he regards as one great cause why so many of our young men were not married and it was a great sin and would lead to insanity and a premature grave, end quote. So this one I love, especially because of the Mormon discourse on masturbation. We have Daniel H. Wells addressing a group in 1871 in Grantsville saying, self-pollution is such a, such a, a scourge, uh, self-abuse or self-pollution. And we, finally, strangely enough, for outsiders, they, they might not be aware of this term, but Mormons still use the term self-abuse uh, sometimes. In fact, my generation especially use that term sort of as a joke, but also as a condemnation. But I also like that he uses self-pollution, which of course is such a shamey, shamey term. And he warns that this is why young men aren't married. It's a great sin. It will drive you insane and you will die early. Of course, now we know that re the research shows the opposite of that. But that's some insight into uh, what people were thinking on September 11th, 1871. On September 11th, 1892... Uh, it was a Sunday. Elder Brigham Smoot baptized, albeit near Mua Tonga Tabu, who was the first convert to Mormonism in Tonga. So first convert from Tonga, September 11th, 1892. September 11th, 1903, the first polygamous marriage performed in Canada by authorization of President Joseph F. Smith. Patriarch John A. Wold performs this marriage and several others until the end of 1905. So here we have Joseph F. Smith issuing plural marriages long after the manifesto, September 11th, 1903. By September 11th, 1915, James E. Talmadge has Jesus the Christ appear for the first time. Um, the first newspaper review and advertisement of the book appears in the Evening Desert News. And so this is when that book starts to get into circulation. And as many LDS Mormons know, and some fundamentalists, this book is still heavily used today. An interesting thing that people forget about when they talk about atrocities with September 11th is that on September 11th, 1942, the Topaz Japanese American Relocation Center opens that day. And of course, this is basically a concentration camp for Japanese Americans from the San Francisco area who had been housed at uh, the Tanferin racetrack since they hastily constructed it. And they transport them to Delta, Utah by train. The population of the camp soon reaches about 8,000. Once located, some of the internees start building their own barracks and structures on site. And of course, they were eventually released, but this is a great source of pain in American history. Now we're going to skip forward to uh, some events that some of you might know. September 11, 1999, uh, then church president Gordon B. Hinckley, president of the LDS Church, dedicates a new monument to the victims of the 1857 massacre. He says, quote, the past cannot be changed. It's time to leave the entire matter to God. Uh, on September 11, 2001, in the United States, four airliners were hijacked by Muslim terrorists and intentionally crashed into uh, buildings in New York City, killing many, many people. Um, a regularly scheduled choir concert becomes a September 11th memorial service for the Tabernacle Choir. On September 11th, 2004, the Joseph Smith Papers Project um, is arranged. The Desert News reports that, quote, the first volumes of the comprehensive compilation of Smith's writings is scheduled for 2005. Another interesting thing that might interest my fundamentalist friends is on September 11th, 2007, the trial for Warren Jeff started in St. George on this day. And then another interesting Mormon connection on September 11th, 2008, 
Mormon leadership issues letters to be read in all congregations in the U.S. stating that the church affirms its constitutional right of expression on political and social issues and really starts their campaign against same-sex marriage. Now, it's just really interesting to note that the day has some strange significance for the development of the state of Utah and Mormonism. Of course, it's not all terrible. Um, like I said, one of my good friends had their baby born on this day, too. So I'm going to play uh, this tape from Mormon Expression. But, you know, when I recorded this, this was several years ago, before I even started the series, there was a lot that I've learned about history since and the method of history. And so I would encourage everyone to do some follow-up research. I think on one point I attribute this, uh, I say that there were some Native Americans involved. And since then, there has been research that has come out saying, actually, um, there's no evidence to suggest that any Native Americans were involved. It was just white men painted as Indians. Um, And so keep that in mind. So I'm just going to go over some of the basic facts that we know now and that you can use in context when you hear this kind of fun. Fun feels like an inappropriate word, but um, probably more interesting discussion than just me and my voice on the podcast. I'm going to actually let Fair Mormon, the apologetic arm of Mormon studies, set this up for us. So this comes from their website, and I'm going to read it uh, word for word what they're saying. This is their summary of the Mountain Meadows Massacre. Okay. Quote, In 1850, Utah was established as a U.S. territory with Brigham Young as its first governor. Because of its territorial status, the federal government retained the right to appoint officials at various levels in addition to actual federal offices that existed within the territory. While there were no doubt many honest public servants among them, a number of the federal appointees to both territorial and federal positions, including some judges, turned out to be both morally venal and abusive of the prerogatives of their offices. Scandals arose over the behavior of some of these men, who left the territory in disgrace. Rather than accepting responsibility for their own failures, a group of them, upon returning to the East, published claims that they had been forcibly expelled and that Mormons were rebelling against federal authority. These claims caused quite an uproar in Washington, where the nascent Republican Party demanded something be done about the Mormons. Acting without benefit of an investigation, U.S. President James Buchanan appointed Alfred Cumming as territorial governor and on June 29, 1857, ordered federal troops to escort coming to Utah. Additionally, Buchanan ordered the cessation of all mail service to Utah in an effort to provide the advantage of surprise for the advancing troops. Despite the efforts of Buchanan to keep the advance of the Army secret, Mormon mail runners notified Brigham Young, the incumbent territorial governor, the very next month that troops were traveling to Utah. He had not been officially notified that he was to be replaced, so he viewed the news, combined with the efforts to hide the movement of the troops, as an act of war by the United States government against the Mormons. Brigham closed all church missions, instructing all missionaries to return to Utah, and ordered the abandonment of more isolated Mormon colonies. He prepared to defend the territory against the approaching army by adopting a scorched-earth policy. He sent small parties to harass the approaching troops with the intent of slowing their progress while he prepared the saints for the plausible possibility of battles with U.S. troops. The news of the approaching army spread quickly through the body of the saints as preparations were made. Many Mormon settlers vividly remembered the hardships of being forcibly and violently expelled from Missouri and Illinois and were resolved not to be driven from their homes again. The mood in the territory was grim and determined. This conflict, known as the Utah War, was ultimately resolved peacefully, but it was into this tense atmosphere the Baker-Fancher train party entered in August of 1857, end quote. Now that's sort of an ominous way to lead into it, but there is sort of this apologetic setup that says, you know, you can understand why the, the climate of the territory was the way it was. Now, in mimetic theory, there's this idea that animal behavior is reciprocal. Violence is reciprocal. If you're in the animal world, somebody hurts you, you lash out and hurt back. That is the, like, mechanism for survival. That is the natural instinct. 
But as mimetic theory is developed, as this energy is transferred elsewhere, you find other outlets for it. So we see Fair Mormon employing a certain theology of mimetic theory to the explanation of why this had happened. Of course, the Mormons had been hurt and persecuted. They had been unfairly represented in the East by um, political leaders that refused to take responsibility for themselves. And here we see our sacrificial lamb coming through at just the right time, the Baker-Fancher party. Now, this context is key, not only because you know, some apostates went and tattled to folks in Washington about the Mormons, but that does certainly add a different layer to it, doesn't it? We also need to understand the context of 1850s Utah. I've talked a lot about the Mormon Reformation. I love the history of the Mormon Reformation. It's a crazy part of Mormonism. Again, I'll point it out. Mormons, it's the early, you know, 1850s, that whole decade, Mormons are starving. They are trying to toil in this desert. They are fighting off the elements. They are fighting off poverty. They are fighting off the criticism of their own neighbors. Federal troops arrive in and out and disrupt sort of their peace. And the gold rush is coming through. And they're interacting with outsiders who bring judgment and sometimes violence. They also had a very violent past. Uh, It's not the days of Kirtland where you're seeing all these beautiful revelations and angels sweeping over the temple anymore. You are literally struggling for survival and you're going to, instead of your green city of Nauvoo or of Kirtland with your beautiful white buildings, green grass and trees, you're going through dusty, muddy, cold, frozen dirt, dry roads, and you're going to the Bowery downtown for church services made out of sticks lashed together. It was this raw and brutal time. And out of this, church leaders decide they need something to fuse the people together who are now being scattered throughout the territory. And they really develop this religiosity. This is where we get home teachers coming from the, the catechisms that, that uh, Brigham Young and Jedediah Grant develop, this list of questions that they send home teachers out into the home to ask everybody. Everything from personal worthiness to personal cleanliness, and you have to repent and be rebaptized and beat yourself with reeds and beat other people with reeds, and you're in the the tabernacle, everyone's yelling and seeing devils and casting out devils and punching each other and beating each other and hitting each other, and just this crazy time in Mormonism. That's the context of the 1850s Utah, too, and it's really interesting when you look at it in the theory of group psychology, too, how when you're together new cultural norms develop. If you were to walk down the street and see someone speaking in tongues, uh, shaking or beating someone else with a reed, it would be unusual at the very least. But back then it was seen as a new cultural norm that develops. Another factor that happens was the murder of Parley P. Pratt, which we'll talk about in the Mormon Expression episode a little bit, and I've talked about on this podcast before. He was an apostle Um, from the church, an early apostle that was very influential. We quote from him a lot. He was murdered in Van Buren, Arkansas, which led to rumors that an approaching wagon train of fellow folks from Arkansas um, were traveling to California. So Parley P. Pratt is in the, again, we've talked about this, but the idea that he he marries a woman who is already married to a non-Mormon. And this non-Mormon is violent and tracks, tries to track down his wife, can't find her, goes after Parley P. Pratt and murders him in a pretty brutal way in Arkansas. Well, the Baker-Fancher party that comes through the Utah Territory is from Arkansas, and Mormons don't see that as a coincidence. They see this as, you know, those outsiders, those Gentiles hate us and we hate them back. And they killed Parley P. Pratt, and uh, the Baker-Fancher party must be complicit in that some somewhere. Now, the Baker-Fancher party was said to be one of the most wealthy wagon parties to travel west. And they had uh, a lot of people. They were well-stocked. They had good cattle. They had good supplies. And there's a lot of plotting that has to do with um, involving the massacre. Brigham Young declares 
uh, a state of martial law when he hears um, that the federal troops are coming in 1857. Uh, civic and religious leaders of town gather together and decide how to best implement, you know, this law. And um, we talked about this in the, in the podcast when we talked about Pioneer Day. They're up celebrating Pioneer Day when the word comes that the troops are coming and Brigham Young really starts to mobilize. And this is seen as an act of war. So he talks to his people. And after several behind the, behind the, scene, behind the scenes meetings, um, some word gets around with a plan. Now, Brigham Young's involvement is, of course, questionable. Um, now, remember, Brigham is in Salt Lake, and this massacre happens in southern Utah. For me to even drive in the car, it's five or six hours. And so the distance certainly is one of the reasons used to exonerate Brigham Young, that he wasn't aware. So President Isaac C. Haight holds a weekly high council meeting in southern Utah, and they discuss what to do with the immigrants coming through. And it's not an accident and men in local uh, one, two, and three, and four militias and stakes are called to be part of it. So the the leaders that would have received instruction from Brigham Young are now mobilizing in southern Utah, and Isaac C. Haight was one of them. The Bishop of Cedar City, Philip Klingingsmith, was an integral part. John D. Lee was a man of high position down there and claimed to convene with George A. Smith on the matter, who was an apostle. John D. Lee was also spiritually adopted by Brigham Young. So these men are starting to come up with plans, and this is where this group mentality comes into play. Now, in mob psychology, there is still an element of individuality. There is resistance. It's not completely inevitable. And although this, there are all these elements that sort of set the tone for what is happening, you can make an excuse that the people were sort of compelled to do this. There are a few detractors with the plans that these uh, church leaders are making. And some of the detractors don't get enough attention. John Morris, Laban Morrill, Charles Hopkins Pugmire, Elias Morris, and others. It is said that some of these men were told no. That th- It's said that sometimes that these men who said no faced severe consequences. Um, there are rumors that the council of men plotting the massacre discussed murdering the men. And it is true that a lot of the men lost their positions and status and sometimes even property after the fact of, by saying no. So saying no, uh, there were huge consequences for this, that the fact that even their own deaths were discussed. Okay, I'm going to go back to Fair's description of the massacre. Quote, the party was passing through to California and told that there were unfriendly and dangerous tribes of Indians lurking about. They were told by, quote, helpful Mormons, take a certain route that would lead them to Mountain Meadows. They would be attacked, raided, and harassed. There they would be attacked for five days, pulled their wagons in a half-moon shape against some rocks while Mormon men, dressed as Indians, raided their camp. They initially thought they were being attacked by Indians, but several members of the party, including teenage boys who tried to escape to get help, noticed that the attackers were white men and witnessed them, quote, washing paint from their faces. When the attackers realized their identity was discovered and the militia commander and stake president William H. Dame ordered that they must be killed. Thus it was that on September 11th, a flag of truce was carried to the Baker Fancher party by William Bateman. He was met outside the camp by one of the immigrants, a Mr. Hamilton, and an arrangement was made for John D. Lee to speak to the immigrants. Lee described to them a plan to get them through the hostile Indians. The plan involved the immigrants giving up their arms, loading the wounded into wagons, and then being followed by the women and older children, with the men bringing up the rear of the company in single-file order. In return for compliance with these terms, the white men would give the immigrants safe conduct back to Cedar City, where they would be protected until they could continue their journey to California. The immigrants agreed. The wagons were brought forward and loaded with the wounded and the weapons, and the procession started toward Cedar City. Within a short distance, one armed white man was positioned near each of the bench- Baker Fancher party adults, ostensibly for protection. When all was in place, a predetermined signal was given, and each of the armed, men, white, armed white men turned, shot, and killed each of the unarmed Baker Fancher party members. Within three to five minutes, the entire massacre of men, women, and older children was complete. 
The only members of the original party remaining were those children judged to be under eight years old, numbering about 17 persons. End quote. It's impossible in this short time to talk about the effect and aftermath of this event under such a short, you know, podcast episode. And that's why I'm going to take a few to talk about violence and how it occurs with this. Remember, blood atonement, this is my theory behind taking away the sacrificial lamb and mimetic violence. Uh, Blood atonement was a polygamous doctrine. We've already covered how blood atonement is connected to polygamy. Brigham Young explicitly links the two when he introduces this doctrine in the Journal of Discourses. He ties it to Adam-God theory and to uh, salvation and to plural marriage. It's inherently tied. And all of this is part of these emerging social norms that are coming out of this Mormon identity, this oppressed group. This effect of the Mountain Meadows goes on still today in some ways. And the effect sort of scatters like shrapnel from bullets scattered throughout Utah politics, history, and its membership. This is another way that sort of remnants of of the plural consciousness is there. Now, I don't mean to say that polygamy is responsible for massacre. Rather, I'm saying polygamy mindset, especially frontier polygamy mindset, also used the justification, the rationalization that you put on hold your own personal identity for the good of the group. The greater the sacrifice in plural marriage, the more blessed you would be, the more blessed your community would be, the more blessed your offspring would be. And this is the same sort of rationale that comes behind this. It's the Laban cutting off the head of, of Nephi. It's all tied into this frontier doctrine. It's really baked in together. You know, there were cover-ups, Mormon take, Mormons taking blood oaths to never speak about. The men that participated claimed to take a, an oath of blood atonement that should anyone involved speak of it, that he would be blood atoned, having his throat slit from ear to ear. And there are also several strong theories that suggest that the reason that um, the man John D. Lee, who would be the only man to successfully be prosecuted and tried for the crime. Um, the reason that he was killed the way he was was an act of blood atonement. Um, they say that he had uh, marks carved on his body that resembled the marks of the, the garment. And in this theory of medic violence, John D. Lee becomes a sacrificial lamb for this case. There's all this uh, this huge act of what Gerard would call the, the founding murder that starts it off, that leads up to all of this violence, this oppression, this aggression, as a result of the massacre, and somebody has to pay. Well, John D. Lee is the man that ends up paying for this. And after he is killed, it does help for a time. It does help uh, in this theory of medic violence. Things kind of settle down, or at least they seem to. Those who are involved have to swallow it, but order is restored, or at least it feels that way in the community. Now, of course, John D. Lee's family would carry the shame and stigma surrounding this. Folks like Nephi Johnson, who were involved, would say on his deathbed, according to Juanita Brooks, blood, 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 right before he died. The shadow of the massacre would haunt Brigham Young politically for the rest of his life, and the church would actively, actively try to forget it and not talk about it. And then, of course, the children that survived the massacre, the 17 children, um, who were not slaughtered, who were under the age of eight, uh, under the age of accountability, were adopted into Mormon families for a year, and then they would go on to live their lives between soldiers and whatever family that could be found, and really experience some unspeakable trauma as a result of that. Now, when I say misunderstanding, I know it's hard to believe, but I really do believe that many of these men involved in the massacre were decent men. They were husbands and fathers who hadn't hurt anyone before, except they felt that their family and their faith had to be protected. They were caught up in this myth that they were persecuted. And, and when I say myth, I'm not saying something that isn't true necessarily. I'm using the myth, the, the word myth to mean the stories we tell ourselves about our lives. Um, everything, if you look at it, is a myth. That's what they say in the book Sapiens. Uh, by Noah Harari, he says that um, everything is a myth from equality. Equality is a myth that we construct to uh, bring fairness to people, 
to the idea of uh, religious myths. Everything is a myth to establish some sort of order. Well, these men caught, caught up in the myth that their families were being threatened. And this is why perhaps some of them got involved. It doesn't for a minute excuse the atrocities they committed, but there are also reports of men losing their nerve in the massacre or being sick and throwing up during it in those short few minutes when it happened. And if you know anything about the Milgram experiment in the 60s, which I think we cover in the Mormon Expression episode that I'm going to play, it shows that decent people will do very bad things under the right circumstances. So just as a recap of the Milgram experiment, it involved three men. So one played the authority figure, one as the learner who was hooked to the electrodes, and one as a confederate who helped administer the shocks. So what would happen is the learner would be asked questions by the confederate. When he gave the wrong answer, the confederate, at the urge of the authority figure, would administer a shock to the learner. So you have, the, you have this man sitting at the table, um, the learner, and he's being asked questions. The learner's hooked up to these electrodes, and he's asked questions. Every time he gets it wrong, the authority figure tells the confederate, shock him. Now, here is the trick to the Milgram experience experiment. The learner who was hooked up to these electrodes wasn't actually receiving shocks, but the confederate, the guy who's administering the shocks, doesn't know this. He thinks that every time he's administering a shock that it's real. The learner was just an actor. The learner is pretending to have pain. Um, And the confederate actually thinks he's causing pain to the learner. So as the voltage increases, the learner would complain more and more and maybe start to say, I've got a heart condition. I've got a heart condition. And as he, as he um, misses more questions, he starts banging on the wall and he starts screaming in pain. His acting really ramps it up. And the Confederate is still administering the pain because the authority pig- figure is telling him to do so. If at any time the subject desires to stop the experiment, there were a series of verbal prods that were given in this order from the authority figure. And here's what they are. The first one was, please continue. And if the, if the Confederate said, I don't want to continue, then the next prod would be, the experiment requires that you continue. And if he still resisted, then they would say, it is absolutely essential that you continue. And if there was still resistance, then they would say, You have no other choice. You must go on. If the subject still wished to stop after all of those four successive prods, then they stopped the experiment. Otherwise, it was only stopped after they had given the maximum 450 volt shock three times in succession to the learner. And of course, those were fake, but the confederate didn't know that. That is when it would stop. The Milgram experiment isn't just about obeying authority figures, although that that is like the most applicable, popular interpretation of it. Um, There was a finance professor, Robert Schiller, who wrote a book about this and how the Confederates were able to willingly do so much harm to someone else because the authority figure told them it was okay and that it was necessary. The authority figure creates a myth surrounding these actions, and the myth really stresses something that the confederate figure needed and wants to believe. And that's important. That's important in group dynamics. If your survival is being threatened, if you're worried about outside forces, if you're worried about survival, how you're going to grow crops, your families are down in southern Utah digging up roots to eat, you're barely making it as it is, you really want to believe a myth that if you can enact, if someone can pay for that, if you can maybe kill the Baker-Fancher party, then you'll be safe. That's a myth you want to believe. And this is a lesson that I think everyone should listen to, that should you have been in a Mormon family in 1850s Utah, there is a very high possibility that you would have been involved. And I know everybody likes to say, well, not me, I would be the one that, that isn't. There is a lot of research that shows that even highly educated people are susceptible to these things. 
you know, I'm taking a consumer health class right now and it talks about the susceptibility of people to believe in quackery or people that take advantage, you know, snake oil salesmen. And a lot of it has to do with these ideas. If you're in chronic pain, you want to believe this myth that something will heal you. Or if you believe in magical thinking, and of course, Mormons in 1850 certainly did. Again, we talked about Wilford Woodruff writing in his journal about Joseph Smith finding the seer stone in a pot. That is magical thinking by definition. It makes you more susceptible to these ideas. And especially if you're coached um, into an authoritarian sort of mindset and 1850s Utah is completely ruled by authoritarian, theocratic rule. This, this would have been you. Very few people said no. I only say this to bring context today because it's very, very hard for me to find any sort of inspirational message from this massacre because I don't think that there is one. It's a tragedy and we don't need to do the Mormon thing where, you know, we turn it into a teaching material with a, you know, cute little anecdote and a, you know, twist at the end. It's a horror and it can just be a horror. But if you do want to extract anything from this kind of lesson, it can perhaps be about how we let our own misperceptions, our fears, our desires to believe scripts that we think keep us safe to actually do harm. And we all do it. We do it today. We do it about September 11, 2001. This is something that that really gets me. I've spent the last year for school studying in depth the history of the Islamic religion from its ancient roots till now in great detail. I have a very uh, meticulous professor whose the assignments are very complex and um, we're reading feminist, Islamic, Muslim feminist essays and we're reading counterpoints to that and we're reading about all these different movements. And I feel like the men who were radicalized to commit the horrible atrocities against so many innocent Americans They're misunderstood by Americans, but also they had their own misunderstandings and misconceptions and myths that are completely rooted in their history and in their context. People don't want to be bad guys. And these guys didn't think they were bad guys. They thought that they were heroes. They felt attacked and persecuted by America and the West. And it's not some like crazy myth that they made up. There's a precedence for this. If you know the history from World War I, you know, where Britain comes in and colonizes um, all of these places and then gets them involved in the war and uh, Russia gets them involved. And now this Middle East conflict, the Ottoman Empire falls. France promises Syria that they're going to establish an independent state and all of these, all of these conflicting things where they begin to see the West of the enemy. They too had witnessed depredations and violence from their enemies. They too had a skewed idea and misconceptions about the West. They too had faith that they clung to and authority figures who exploited that. And they let their misconceptions and their misunderstandings thrive and feed like poison until they were able to commit these heinous crimes and not just do that, but think that they were justified in doing it. And um, this is why I think it's essential even when discussing this massacre, that we try to examine our own motives because it's really, really easy to look at the other guys and say, they're the villains in our story. But what do you do if you try to put yourself, to try to sympathize with the villains for a minute? No, I think I've talked about this before, but I went and saw the the musical Wicked when I was in London with John DeLynn and he was telling me, Lindsay, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the main character, Elsaba, the witch. I want you to see if you have any similarities. And the story is really about her being misunderstood. She's standing up to a system that she sees as wrong, and she's portrayed as a villain. And the town, you know, is really terrible to her and misunderstands her. And so what I decided to do was for the first act of the play, I tried to put myself in Elsaba's shoes. She is clearly the hero of the the play Wicked. But I decided in the second act to do something else, an exercise. And this time I put myself in the shoes of the townspeople who were judging her, the villains in the story. And I wanted, and I did this genuinely to see if I could really understand where they were coming from. And it was a surprising exercise for me to flex that muscle because here's the thing. We all think that we're the heroes in our own story at some point, and someone else is the villain. But what does it mean when we switch the script? Are we able to do that? 
What are our own scripts, our privileges, the systems we participate in, our own misconceptions? That's the hard part. And if you really want to come away from this and say, I would never be that guy that participated in Mountain Meadows, then you really have to be able to do that. It's challenging and it makes us defensive. And, you know, some of us may think, well, I'm not a Mormon, so my hands are washed from this. And maybe that's true. But it's also true that we have scripts in our lives that rely on reducing others to a single story. So how do we honor the dead in this story? How do we honor the slain, those who were murdered? I think we become a living memorial for them by first remembering them and keeping them alive. That's important. But how do we keep them alive? I think we try to remember as many parts of them as we can. And that means the good stories, the bad stories, the mundane stories, the dramatic stories, all the pieces that make them them. I mean, think about your own life, how complex you are. We can honor them by trying to commit to coming to a better understanding of the context of their lives as an act of solidarity against the oppressions and violence that harm them. And I feel like if we're able to do that, then maybe we can go away from this story that you're going to listen to in just a minute with a clear conscience that perhaps you wouldn't have been involved. to support Utah women making local music. If you like the music on this podcast, it comes from a band called Lady Murasaki. You can check them out at ladymurasaki.bandcamp.com.